the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to this KGNW broadcast special, Heart of the City. Pastors, ministry leaders, and churches have received a call to serve their communities with the love and compassion of Christ. The call is from God's heart to the Heart of the City. This is Heart of the City. I'm Chuck Olmstead, the Director of Local Ministry Development for 820 AM The Word. Well, I've got to tell you, I am so excited today to have a a friend that I met about five or six years ago and haven't seen her since, but she's back in studio today. Her name is Rebecca Pratt. She's the president and co-founder of Orphan Relief and Rescue and Rebecca, welcome to Heart of the City. Thank you. It's good to be here. Well, the first time I met you, you were on with Doug Birch, and I remember we uh, we uh, raised money for a, latri- a latrine. Yes, yes. And uh, at an orphanage in, I think it was Liberia. Mo- in Liberia. And it was exciting because you were kind of hesitant. We were talking about trying to raise some funds, and you said, well, I said, what's the biggest need that you have? <laughs> and you said, well, the reality is it's a latrine. Yep. And, you know, this was in December, and we're thinking, you know, Christmas time, that's not a real, you know, wonderful thing to ask for. But that's what the biggest need was at that time yeah. for y'all. Yeah. And so we did it, and our listeners were, you know, responded, and it was a wonderful thing that uh, we were able to provide a latrine for yes. for the orphanage there. And so a lot has happened since then. I, I've yes. been chatting with you on the air or off the air here before we started recording and um, and so you've got some stories to share, but I'd like to go back and just, uh, for those folks who don't know you, tell me what Orphan Relief and Rescue is. What's the organization? Yeah, so we, 10 years ago, started Orphan Relief and Rescue. My husband and I, we had worked for a Christian charity called Mercy Ships for eight years. Two of our last years with them was on one of their hospital ships in Africa, So we lived on this hospital ship with our three kids that went to school on board that ship. And it was really our introduction into Africa and just the the huge need that um, mainly for children. We just saw children in such despairing situations that nobody knew what to do with. Social welfare offices didn't know what to do with them. Um, They were in complicated situations. I tried to recruit some other organizations that I knew were nonprofits that shared that this is what they do. They help the dying children, you know, in Africa. And so I would call them up and say, I've got some dying children that need your help. And (laughs) they would say, oh, no, no, those aren't the ones we help. You know, those are too complicated for us. And those are like giving to a big black hole. So those were the ones when we came back to America to live normal lives again after eight years of ministry, God would not let us sleep at night. And it was really six months of sleeplessness that my husband and I would wake up at two or three in the morning and say, what are you thinking about? And it'd be like, children, which ones? We would ramble off all the names of the children that we knew would most likely die if we did not go back. So um, so after you know that, the Lord provided an opportunity for some friends to come alongside us and help us pioneer um, Orphan Relief and Rescue. 
and we specifically said we are only going to touch the children that nobody knows what to do with. And it's the ones that really are the forgotten children in Africa. So Liberia and Benin, West Africa, were the two um, countries that we have started in. And 10 years later, we're still in there. They're two of the most uh, considered more, you know, the poorest of the, the African nations in West Africa. So it's uh, lots of needs. So let's go back a little bit. <clears throat> Before you were married, what was your life like? Did you grow up around here? Were you part of... Texas. I think you're, you have family in Texas. So what was life for you? Yeah, my parents were missionaries in Mexico. We lived in El Paso, Texas. That's where I was born. And they would go over the border regularly, um, feeding hungry, you know, children as well. Uh, my dad was an evangelist. So he would have evangelistic meetings all through Mexico, dragged us five kids uh, around Mexico. We lived in Mexico for one of those years. And it was a little hard. My mom had two kids in diapers, and back then it was all cloth diapers mm-hmm. and, you know, the ringer wash machine and hand washing. And so she was, uh, when I was eight, they actually came out of the mission field and um, moved up to the northwest, was raised pretty much on Whidbey Island, where my grandfather gave my dad a plot of land. And um, yeah, that's where I grew up. So you saw the you saw the the work of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, for you personally. When did you come to know the Lord? So I came to know the Lord when I was four years old, listening to my dad share the gospel with somebody in the living room, and he walked the man through the salvation message and just why it's so important to come to know the Lord. And I remember in my bed just. You know, he told the man, he goes, I want you to remember this day because this is the first day of the rest of your life where it's going to be an adventure following the Lord. And I remember thinking, okay, I'm accepting the Lord now and it's, I'm four years old, you know, (laughs) and it was just really a sweet thing because my dad had no idea that what he was doing was actually influencing me. And I never... You know, I I grew up really understanding that following this amazing God who created us is an adventure. Life is an adventure with the Lord. And as we follow in whatever he does uh, or whatever he asks us to do, that adventure is going to follow that. And And my dad lived it. He breathed it. He told us stories about, you know, crazy stuff. And then we witnessed crazy stuff. So that's really, that was my history of knowing that, you know, this is a pretty cool way to live. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not what you'd call your typical Western experience in no. the sense of most families. Yeah. But you saw the genuineness of people's lives being changed and mm-hmm. uh, throughout your whole childhood. Yeah. And uh, so that would be exciting. So what uh, what made you think and consider Mercy Ships? So my husband and I um, both did a Youth with the Mission discipleship training school before we were married. And then when we got married, we both said, you know, with within our marriage, it would be great to do a two-year mission stint, you know, once we start having kids and just kind of have a family mission experience. So uh, my husband had a, um, a brother who worked in Mercy Ships, and we thought, wouldn't it be great to work under him? You know, so he was with Mercy Ships. So when we were married for 10 years, and we had three kids, and we thought, this is it. This is time to do this mission thing. We really felt called by the Lord to do it at that time and um, sold everything, 
paid off all our debts, you know, did all the weeding through your life stuff, and and then, yeah, moved to Texas at the international campus there of Mercy Ships, and our two years turned into eight years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So back to Orphan Relief and Rescue. So when you decided to... Um, to, to venture off in your in your ministry, uh, I would I shouldn't say on your own because you've had a lot of support and the Lord told yeah. you to do that. You said uh, you wanted to go to those that were not recognized or who were forgotten. So what uh, what transpired in the in the next few years as you began to do that? Yeah, so it started when we were on that hospital ship. And so we had a team that my husband and I had trained, and it was a young adult team that we had released into the field. You know, they were going to go on their two-month field assignment. So they went up country, and they were going to the voodoo capital of the world, um, where they say it's the birthplace of voodoo in Benin in this rural village area. And so they left, and we were excited to send them off. And um, and then they started emailing us about, you know, there's these kids that they're literally dying in this orphanage. There's 109 kids, and they can't find help for them. And they walk, you know, a mile and a half to get water and a mile and a half back. And these little kids are dragging, you know, all this water that long ways. And they only get a little bit of rice once a day, and, and they just don't know what to do for these kids. So after hearing, you know, their stories over and over, my husband and I thought, well, you know, let's just go check and see what is really going on and see if there's anything we can do. And um, that was really our entrance into realizing that there's wealthy people that live close by and there's organizations, and yet there's these dying kids that nobody will touch. Why is that? And that was really the beginning of our our, – kind of realization of the, I would say, the mindset in that area where these organizations really say, you know, those those are ones that we don't know what to do with, so we just don't do anything. Hmm. And, um, and I wasn't real satisfied with that, having three kids of my own who, you know, I would go back to on the ship where we were sleeping in, you know, fairly comfortable beds mm-hmm. and plenty of shoes in the closet and clothes and we had food three meals a day and these kids were starving you know and I I just couldn't um, sleep at night over that so you come back to the U.S. and you 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 start uh, this organization and uh, if I recall you had at a at a at one point in time several orphanages and one of the things that you said is uh, if I recall that you would sometimes shut orphanages down. Yeah, so we found out in working with orphanages that a lot of these directors have opened the orphanages specifically as a business. They would um, basically traffic kids in to their orphanage and then let people in the U.S. know they have all these kids, you need to help me because these kids are starving, and they would keep the kids at starvation level so that people would see how skinny and awful of conditions they were in. So the more we dug into the orphanage scenarios, the more we realized what those NGOs were talking about, non-government organizations were talking about when they said it's a big black hole that you're going to be giving in. Now for us, we just had to set up a lot of parameters of um, finding out, doing our research to find out if these directors were legitimate or not. Mm -hmm. And then we put a system together with the social welfare offices of um, 
basically an accreditation committee that we worked with um, the Liberian government is where we started. And we sat on their um, accreditation committee pretty much for the last 10 years and set standards up of what's healthy, what's not. And um, so in that process, a lot of these bad orphanages got closed because of that. And the good ones got helped and the bad ones got closed. Of course, there's still always going to be bad ones out there that mm-hmm. stay open that you just they, – they seem to recycle themselves. Um, but uh, for the most part, we've done a lot of um, justice stuff in that area. Talk to me about the culture itself. You, we had, we had uh, you'd mentioned that uh, voodoo uh, was a voodoo capital of the world. And so what is life like for the average villager – in, in those areas. Yeah, so in Benin, West Africa, they're they're known as the voodoo capital of the world, the birthplace of voodoo, as well as they're the birthplace of slavery. Now, all of that supposedly was intertwined. Um, they they literally say, yes, it was the when the, the children were stolen out of their homes and taken to the, the seashore and the grandmothers are seeing their children um, and, and grandchildren off into the ships being taken um, stolen basically from their homes, they could not turn to God to bless those men who just stole their children. They had to turn to the dark side because they wanted to do the worst thing possible to harm these people who had stolen their children. So that's where voodoo was created. Hmm. So that's the stories that they tell us. And so the the potions, the poisons, the curses, everything was created to curse. And and now that religious practice is an actual they call it voodoo in that area and it's um there's there are people in the u.s that can't can't <laughs> fathom that they don't probably buy into that at all that they think that's just yeah. some sort of imagination but you've seen the reality of it yeah the reality is it, it, what's crazy is in the area where we work nobody addresses justice issues nobody even if they see somebody beating a child to death next to them, they won't even get involved because they're afraid that that person's going to turn around and curse them to die. And they've seen it happen, for real. And so, you know, with us, obviously we have the God who created us on our side. Thank you, Jesus. <laughs> and we don't fear all of that, and we're allowed to address all these justice issues. But they're, um, they don't have that kind of protection. And so they, they're, none of these justice issues are addressed by the locals because they're afraid to be cursed in that area. So even in the sense of, uh, as we were talking before we came on the air here, that, that um, even for parents, as far as their own children are concerned, uh, they, there's not that respect for life necessarily. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so in the area where we work, um, we had heard rumors that some women do sacrifice their first babies to instill a blessing on their other babies um, coming up in that voodoo. Um, I, we call it voodoo in the English language. There it's a voodoo religion. And so as we started working in these areas, you know, we've started realizing this is actual truth. Um, this is the area that we've come to work in that um, unbelievable things happen and and it and then of course trafficking of their kids 20% of all the children in the area that we work in in Benin children uh, 20% of the children have already been trafficked out is the statistics that we have found and so we are making huge progress with bringing in the Jesus element the god who created us 
created as valuable and important and values life. Um, in that voodoo, voodoo um, religion, there's there seems to be no value for life. And mainly, what this is my personal take on it is, if they're asked to sacrifice their first baby, that mother, you know, the first baby is like the most exciting time for a mother, you know, where you're like excited that this is your first baby and it's the first glimmer of life. And when that baby's first starts moving, you know, you're starting to bond with this baby. But for them that knows that they're going to have to kill that baby as soon as that baby's born so that this is what their gods require, there's no attachment that happens with these mothers and these babies. So those future children, it seems that there's no attract, uh, uh, attachment to these future babies as well. And I believe it's because the enemy has robbed them of mm. that first joy. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to have that joy for other children coming up as well as you know, one in six children die before their fifth birthday in these areas as well. The average wage is 25 cents a day in the area where we work. So it's it's this poverty linked with religious practice, with death, and there's not a whole lot to rejoice in life. And, um, and so with bringing in the love of Christ, the value of life, this whole other... Um, this whole other spiritual reality, spiritual yeah. reality yeah. it's it's um, a shock, but it's beautiful. It's a beautiful thing, and it resonates to their spirit. That's truth. So, talk to me about how that works. Then, what what are some of the things that you've uh, you've experienced? And maybe this would be a good time for us to move into the fact that beyond orphanages, that you've. You, You've decided and and been called to an anti-trafficking ministry, if you will, in some of these areas. Talk to me about that. How does that work, or what are you doing? Yeah, so we we have a good relationship with one of the judges in Benin that, because we have an orphanage safe home there that we founded, um, we've built a relationship with one of the judges. And he, you know, I, I knew we worked in a crazy area, so I was like, you have crazy stories, I'm sure. Tell me some of them. And he goes, well, do you believe in voodoo? Yes or no? And I says, well, I don't believe in it, but I know it's powerful and I know it's true. And he said, okay, well, people, most people from the West don't believe my stories, so I just stopped telling them. But since you believe that voodoo is true, he goes, I'll tell you some of these stories. So he starts telling me these stories. In those stories, he, stu- you know, he tells me that he's been rescuing 18 kids at the border of Nigeria, um, which is an hour and a half from where we work. And he says, you know, last week I, I rescued 12 kids, this week 16 kids, and then 18 kids. And and he was begging us to do another safe home orphanage. And I said, you know, we couldn't do enough safe home orphanages for the amount of kids that you are rescuing. And he says, well, Rebecca, he goes, if you're not going to do another safe home um, orphanage, then just get your people in these areas and just see if you can curve this. Because I'm tired of rescuing the kids I can only put the trafficker in prison for two months, maximum sentence here. And then um, the kids I have to take right back to the very parents that um, were trafficking them. And he said, so he goes, it's poverty related. You know, these parents aren't bad parents. They just have no other alternative. So please, can you do something? So as I was talking to him, you know, we have translators. So 
my translator was sitting next to me who's a pastor, and I'm thinking, well, the pastor's been out of a job, and I've got three other translators that are also pastors, and they're all out of jobs right now. And I felt like the Lord just kind of whispered to me in between the translations that here's your anti-trafficking team right here. And so I asked them after this meeting, I says, would you guys be interested in being my anti-trafficking team, you know, for Orphan Relief and Rescue? And we'll just kind of see if we can curve, you know, trafficking in this area. And they all said, oh, my goodness, yes, we would love this. So put the team together. The judge signed all the official documents for them to legally go into these villages to see if they could curve poverty is how they put it because the traffickers would kick them out Mm -hmm. and the chiefs would be suspicious of them if it wasn't official business. So for six months they went in, assessed who were the traffickers, why the parents traffic, um, and if there's any way we can curve this. And within six months they said, we know the next 40 kids that are going to be trafficked. Now at the same time, they couldn't mention that they were pastors. They couldn't talk about Jesus. They couldn't tell anyone they were Christians because in the voodoo Um, central area where we worked, they would be killed if they went in and started sharing Jesus because they do not want any, anything to mess with their powers and what they call their juju. Right. And so it was kind of, you know, I told these pastors, it's a secret mission that you're on (laughs) where you can't talk about Jesus or anything. You know, they were all excited saying, oh my goodness, we've never been on a secret mission before, (laughs) you know, but within six months, they knew the next 40 kids, and so to rescue them, they they felt like if we got them into school and on a feeding program, we could rescue them. So we did that, and then we helped the parents with microfinance program. And um, with those parents, we have mandatory meetings once a week where they have to um, come, and then they learn about business, and they learn about this God of love who values life and values everything about their life and has a plan and a destiny for them. and. Um, so through that is where we're seeing huge transformation happen with um, a lot of – most of them are women that are coming to know the Lord through that program. I'm with Rebecca Pratt. But Rebecca, we've got about two more minutes left, and I'm going to invite you back next week because there's some more stories to tell. Uh, Rebecca is the president and co-founder with her husband, Tim, of Orphan Relief and Rescue. And um, – I want to make sure we get this information out. If somebody wants to reach out to you or help your uh, the ministry, how do they do that? Yeah, we have a website, and it's um, just orphanreliefandrescue.org, all one word, lowercase, and the and is spelled out. And, um, yeah, there's plenty of information there that people can get if they want to give, if they want to go on a trip, if they want to just talk to us, get a hold of us, and, yeah, it'd be great. Well, the, there's, like I say, about two minutes left. I, I would just ask you, um, if if someone is thinking about venturing out into a missions trip, maybe they want to get their feet wet a little bit, if you will, um, and just experience some of what you, you're talking about and just kind of understand uh, uh, what what is going on in the rest of the world, what would you recommend for someone that's, 20, 25 years old and wants to wants to go for a few weeks or for, for a few months. What would you say to them? Yeah, I would say definitely ask God. Now, if Africa, I always tell people, don't go to Africa just because you want a, a mission experience. Really go if you know God is asking you to go. And how I determine if it's the Lord or not is 
Um, usually it's my sleep is disrupted at night where it's just constant. It, God doesn't let me rest until I do what he's asking me to do. The second one is it's going to cost me something, usually my time or my money, and it's not going to be comfortable. Those are my three things that, you know, uh, I kind of weigh if they're the Lord or not. But um, but if there's – and the peace, the peace has to be there. If there's no peace and there's agitation, then that's not the Lord. But for the initial mission experience, um, if it's just a quick mission trip that you want to go to, I say go to Mexico. You know, that's kind mm-hmm. of the, the easier place to dig into. Um, and there's, you know, for, for some people, it's a medical team. It, sometimes yes. it's a building project or yes. or whatever. And, and, in fact, my church, the, the, the guys just got back from Mexico and helping mm-hmm. to build a couple of homes down there. And that's a good experience, but it's... Um, it's a good beginning. It's a good beginning, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, listen, we're going to resume this conversation next week, and I appreciate your sharing with us today. Her, her name is uh, Rebecca Pratt. She's the president and co-founder of Orphan Relief and Rescue. And uh, you can find out more at orphanreliefandrescue.org. If you want to hear this interview, you can always go to uh, the, the website and listen to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today on Heart of the City. You've been listening to this KGNW special, Heart of the City. For more information about how your pastor or ministry can be featured on 820 AM The Word, call Chuck Olmstead at 206-269-6216 or go to 820amtheword.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.